The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. In honor of Women's History Month, we focus on the contributions of the Feminism and Legal Theory Project. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, we're going to speak with Professor Martha T. McCleskey about her contributions to the Feminism and Legal Theory Project collection, Feminism Confronts Homo Economicus, Gender, Law, and Society. Martha T. McCleskey is Professor Emerita and William J. McGavern Scholar at the University of Buffalo School of Law, State University of New York in Buffalo, New York. She has been heavily involved with the Feminism and Legal Theory Project since its very early days, and we are very excited to have her here with us. So what are your current research projects? What are you working on right now? I do a lot of work on the connections between economy and um, society, I guess, and, and that includes the, the vulnerability framework. So my work has really all along um, been about how to reframe how we think about the economy within law. And particularly that's about um, questioning and finding a way to move beyond what has become the dominant um, law and economics framework. And that's really been entrenched in in legal scholarship and public policy for the last oh, I don't know, 40 or so years. That includes looking at, you know, the, the questions of justice and fairness within the economy, that, but also the foundational concepts. And oh, and so I do that in a number of different <laughs> forms too. I'm part of a group called Center for Progressive Reform that focuses on uh, regulatory issues and how to rethink um, justice and the economy within, you know, things like workplace health and safety, consumer protection, and environmental regulation. And but I've always been very much involved in questions of um, uh, poverty, gender, families, in um, racial justice, and um, but thinking of that in a um, in, in light of these sort of basic foundational questions of what do we mean by the economy and, um, and, and, and who matters within that framework and how, how can we rethink that to deal with the problems that confront society. And I'm part of a, a bunch of other um, academic networks that are designed to do that, a, a, um, one group uh, appeal that I'm involved in brings together um, heterodox economists with law scholars and lawyers to again sort of um, develop a, a new way of thinking or a different way of thinking about the economy. It's actually not that new, but but what but draws on many traditions and and you know a, his, a long history of scholarship that actually. Um, thought about the economy very differently, and um, and and it's that um, so that it's more that law and economics has it's somehow created myths about the economy that confuse our thinking. 
What are some of the myths that you address in your work? Some of the myths. Well, um, these come up in the, the the two chapters that I did for the the volume on um, feminism confronts homo economicus um, uh, quite a while ago now. So it's really fun to uh, revisit those for this uh, discussion. And um, one of those um, chapters is uh, was titled the politics of economics in welfare reform. And so, um, and, and the, the myth that comes up in that chapter that I address is one that is very much um, in the debates today about public policy. And that's the idea that we can't have too much support for human needs, especially in, in the case of the welfare reform, I was addressing the needs of, of family care and children. We can't have too much because somehow if we don't sharply limit it and craft it with a lot of restrictions and targeting that it will um, take away from what um, the dominant framework constructs as the economy. So rather than saying that this kind of support is a detriment to the economy and agonizing about how do we uh, draw the right lines to limit support for uh, families and whose families deserve a little more or less or what kinds of restrictions should they have. Um, and my, my goal is to, to say that um, in fact, we have to think about um, support for human needs and families as fundamental to what makes the economy thrive. And, and that particularly involves challenging the myth that law has a choice between redistribution on the one hand and efficiency on the other. Or another way of, of framing that divide would be the choice between equity equality on the one hand or between economic growth. A classic way of framing the metaphor of framing that would be, you know, that we constantly are faced with a choice between growing the economic pie or dividing the economic pie. And, um, and I challenge that basic way of thinking um, on the ground that we only grow the economic pie by thinking about how it, economic resources should best be distributed and whose growth and whose, in today's uh, vulnerability framework, whose resilience matters. And so it was particularly fun to kind of look back at the chapter on um, welfare reform, which was really focused on um, the, uh, iconic welfare reform legislation in 1996 in the Clinton administration that so-called ended the so-called welfare as we know it and particularly replaced the AFDC program, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, for, um, with the TANF program, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. And so that is was a kind of important marker and what we can call the rise of neoliberalism because it, it sort of symbolized or represented a kind of shift in policy from 
the idea of a strong welfare state, welfare defined more broadly, and that um, but to the idea that you know the role of government has to be about supporting the market, not providing a, a kind of alternative to the market um, for social needs. And you know, it was it it sort of was the the policy change that stands out in sort of public consciousness as um, the move from the expectation of um, government support for human needs to the idea that individuals need to be responsible personally for um, for success in the market and that that is the primary responsibility of um, of government, not to give people a protection from the market or to support uh, equality as much as to help people become self-reliant and independency. That is a really important um, moment. And it's very interesting to revisit that as just as the Biden administration has um, has passed uh, a major COVID relief package that for the first time really since 96 has in the US has, um, has moved toward back toward um, providing some uh, support for families and ch children. And so it's, it's, it marks some political pushback that for really for the first time in a significant way in, in government, mainstream government um, towards the recognition that um, there were problems, major problems with the idea that people were on their own, so supposedly, and personal responsibility. But I think that the arguments and the debate around the current relief package and the limits that um, were imposed on it um, show the same kind of problematic thinking, the same myth that I was looking at back in this um, earlier article about the 96 reforms. And that's the idea, again, that too much so-called redistribution will end up damaging economic growth. And, um, and just like then, redistribution ends up being a, a kind of story, a label that gets put on some people's social support for at government support for their resilience and, and their ability to thrive in the economy. Whereas other kinds of uh, government supports that are pervasive are treated instead as efficiency supporting just about economic growth and, and rendered invisible. So part of my argument is that the term redistribution this division between dividing and maximizing the economic pie um, is just a moral is a moral judgment rather than an economic fact, and that rather than hiding um, our moral judgments um, in this language that kind of 
mythologizes some government support as efficiency or market promoting, um, we should instead confront the real um, uh, the real normative and political judgments that are going on and subject those to scrutiny. You know, and so for example, uh, you know, as as um, the part of the idea of of redistribution is that um, if say single mothers get government support to raise their children so that they can um, uh, they they can um, they don't need to have. Um, they, do, they don't need to support their kids solely by going into the workplace or um, uh, finding a husband <laughs> in the stereotypical argument to um, who can go into the workplace and support them in raising their kids. Um, instead, they, um, they are having the government support them so that they can provide childcare for their children. But that ends up being their extern the idea the, the idea of redistribution assumes that they're externalizing their costs of children onto someone else who is a marked as a taxpayer, um, and that those resources are then taken away from uh, possibly more valuable uh, allocations like um, investments in jobs and in support for healthcare or education or some other important social need. And therefore, um, we have to be very careful and, and um, uh, sort of miserly about how much uh, support families get. The problem with this, of course, is that it ignores that, um, <laughs> that the rest of the economy doesn't operate by um, you know, having everyone pay for their own needs. The um, government provides all kinds of public support for, um, uh, say, football, for example. Government typically support football stadiums as, as states um, compete for, or localities compete for that. Uh, corporate welfare and is, is, you know, uh, local governments have, over the last 30 years, shifted tremendous amounts of money from um, uh, local government spending on social services to attract uh, jobs. And basic property rights and, and the structure of corporation are designed to give um, uh, investors protection uh, for, their, um, uh, for their economic success. Similarly, the idea that the affluent, usually white, breadwinner homemaker family is self-reliant because uh, if they want to have children, supposedly the breadwinner um, covers the costs of either uh, uh, commodified childcare or a family caretaker. Um, I've written a, a separate article about uh, how, in fact, the U.S. tax code is structured to give a, a subsidy for the breadwinner homemaker family that's far greater than the amount of resources that were given on an annual basis to AFDC. But that 
becomes invisible and it's only available to um, the more affluent um, uh, families. And um, so part of this concern is also that families um, need to be incentivized to go into the workplace. And because the, if you pay people to stay home and take care of their kids, they'll, um, they'll have an incentive um, not to invest in their own economic growth through work. And um, what happens is that, that that ignores, I think, what I call the, the it's, um, it's called a moral hazard because if you pay more people to, um, this is the standard language is that it's, um, if you pay, if you give money to needy families, you'll make more families needy because more families will stay home from work to uh, will have a parent stay home from work or will avoid marriage. But um, I had turned this around to say, well, actually that's a moral opportunity. It allows um, uh, impoverished parents to reject abusive marriages. It, for example, rather than having to rely on uh, someone else for income only, um, who is not a good parent or, or not a good spouse or, or suffering from uh, substance abuse or, or other problems. It also avoid, allows, gives um, parents, low-income parents, um, the power to, or the resilience to resist jobs that are um, destructive, threatening to their health. I mean, today you have many examples of, of so-called essential workers uh, many of whom were um, uh, our single mothers who didn't have the option to stay home from work and were pressured to go to work in, in dangerous jobs where there weren't um, protections for, um, you know, against COVID and, and some of whom um, got sick and died and left their children without a, a parent in, in really tragic situations because again, um, we have an economy that's structured um, to give the protection to employers and allowing them to be free from liability for the costs of health and safety to and the, the costs to families of, of their actions, externalizing the costs of work on to families. And so uh, anyway, so I, I think the, I want to rethink the idea of support for families um, as support for economic uh, power that comes from thinking about the economy as uh, comprised of people. And so the more you build the power of the family, more resilience, which includes the resilience to refuse to, you know, to be able to choose um, and to, to resist um, being put in a situation that's harmful to their health and well-being, um, and to get the supports that have typically been offered only to um, the more wealthy and through corporations, to employers, in, in um, 
and and to many activities that really are socially and economically destructive. Well, then that is a better way to think about how to support the economy. So we don't have to limit um, uh, and agonize over how much support children should get for good childcare otherwise. That that instead should be seen as the uh, central to economic efficiency and economic growth, although I prefer not to use the term economic efficiency. So how did you first get involved in this project of the collection, yeah, Feminism well, Confirms? <laughs> well, there were many, um, a number of, of feminism legal theory workshops that focused on welfare reform. I did some work on um, in law school, some internships on uh, legal services uh, internship, and where I, um, you know, I represented clients who uh, were on food stamps, for example, and I saw the degree to which they were scrutinized and uh, kind of limited, and you know, to get a hundred dollars, they had to jump through um, in, in food stamps. They might have to jump through all kinds of hoops. Then I also did, a, um, I, I later went to work at um, uh, in a state insurance regulation and utility regulation uh, department. And I saw there that um, the state was giving hundreds of millions of dollars worth of protections and benefits to these major uh, multinational corporations in their operations, protecting them from the risks of any kinds of market harm uh, by giving them sufficient returns on their investments. And I said, they, and no questions were asked or very few questions were asked. And when someone did ask the question of like, how exactly are you spending this? It, it was like, well, how dare you? You know, this is, this is economic growth. If we, if we make money, that's, that's great for society. So I saw that contrast. And so that also explains <laughs> <laughs> why well, I, I have two chapters in this volume, and the other one was is about uh, deconstructing the state market divide and um, and 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 looking at how this double standard operates, basically. But looking at how there's a myth of um, uh, that state state intervention in the market to limit um, the power of, of major businesses in favor of protecting human needs like the injured workers in the case of workers' comp or labor and environmental rights in the case of the World Trade Organization, the other example I give, that those are social needs, again, that take away somehow from economic well-being. And I want to challenge that myth and say that, um, uh, of course, the government is thoroughly part of the market, so-called. You can't separate it out. But that, um, and it, that how we draw the line between what counts as supporting the market and its economic growth, so-called, and how we understand as 
departing from the market or regulating the market to protect social needs, that rests on a, a, a story that has no, again, no basis in anything other than a moral judgment about who deserves to be counted as inside the market and who counts as outside of the market. It kind of recasts or, or mystifies the regulatory protections that reduce risk for say insurance companies or for big pharmaceutical companies. Um, it recasts those protections as somehow supporting the free market, whereas protections for workers um, basic health and safety or for uh, the basic uh, living wage, for example, or the right to organize, that's seen as a departure from the market. When you were writing your pieces to contribute to this collection, what did you hope that it would change in the legal field or in the world of policy or economics? Yeah, well, I, I hope that it would denaturalize some of the concepts that are thrown around and, and, and help people who are writing and engaging in policy debates to stop and, not, and, and think again about when they use things like redistribution, how much redistribution is appropriate? Um, how can we have uh, like, how much burden on taxpayers should there be when we provide uh, relief checks to families? That they should stop when they think about that kind of language and say, well, what do we really mean there? And in what ways do these concepts confuse our thinking? And I wrote in these pieces too, those concepts are infused with assumptions about gender, about class, about race, about the human, the nature of the human condition. Assumptions that really, um, if they're brought to light, don't, uh, should not hold, hold up. And um, the people who use those assumptions, I think, um, don't always want to make those judgments. It's just that when we use these, these terms, they can um, make it hard to see what's really going on in the, in the policies. The difference between fair trade and free trade, for example, that free trade involves tons of protections for intellectual property rights for you know, enormous regulatory structures that allow um, corporations and investors to get uh, to coordinate and uh, rather than to compete. Yet when uh, we wanna protect labor rights globally in World Trade Organization or similar international uh, agreements that those are considered somehow uh, uh, departures from the efficient market. Have you noticed a change since the book was published in 2005? Well, I think there's clearly a kind of pause happening um, within some policy circles and an academic discussion that recognizes that 
wait a minute, all this, what we now see as, as neoliberal emphasis on, you know, sort of uh, efficiency and market, the, these ideas, where have they led us? They've led us to the brink of catastrophes, you know, like really existential threats. We've got climate change. We have the COVID disaster. We have um, the collapse of, well, the, the erosion of democracy in the U.S. and in, in, Europe, in Europe and uh, other places in the world. We have mass migration so that we don't see a world <laughs> that has, has um, you know, gotten us to a place of economic well-being or growth or stability from embracing these ideas. So people are starting to, to talk about this and the, the COVID relief package is one um, example of that. It's, you know, again, I think it's, it's the first time since 96 that there's really been significant mainstream political support for families. But it hasn't really, there, there's still less awareness of, you know, how we need to change the foundations of our thinking to really get out of this constant thing of, well, okay, we can have a little bit more protection for families, but how much is too much? And we can't, we have to balance that with uh, protections against liability for uh, uh, nursing homes and, and that are, um, you know, subjecting elderly people to um, high risks and not following health and safety rules and paying their workers poverty level wages. So there's still a lot of work to be done on re-examining how we think about the economy, but there is lots of great, I think, uh, exciting work being done. The Vulnerability Project is, is of course, front and center that, you know, really um, bringing people together to ask these foundational questions. And so that's what really gives me hope and inspiration. How did you first find out about and get involved with the Feminism and Legal Theory Project? Yes, yes. I had the great fortune of, um, of going to Columbia Law School for an LLM and um, associate position teaching legal writing. And um, the big attraction there was um, to connect with Martha Feynman because I was interested in feminism and legal theory. And, um, and so as soon as I got there, I went to the first um, feminism and, and legal theory workshop she had. And, and that was the beginning of just everything I think in my that led my intellectual development and my career and you know uh, it was an opportunity to meet uh, both Professor Feynman and to get um, her absorb her vision and and work within that and then also to meet an incredible community of of creative scholars. Can you tell me about what the workshops were like and what you got out of them? Oh, the workshops are just a kind of model of how to have intellectual conversation and community. Um, in one sense, because they recognize that good scholarship and learning takes place in community. It's not just we go off and brilliant people individually uh, come up with individual ideas. I, 
that, you know, Martha Feynman has been a leader in recognizing that um, in practice as well as theory institutions matter and that creating an institution that really encourages and, and well, basically defines academic work as engaging in conversation. And when, that is so valuable. You know, I, I developed so many ideas and changed my thinking so much because it was structured not just to have people just, uh, you know, present their own work, but the workshops are structured to have lots and lots of conversation and back and forth about each paper. And that means you have to really engage with um, the other participants in the workshop and you have to really, it's a back and forth. So you have to think, well, how does this add to my work? What, what does it mean? How does it uh, give me something to think about that I didn't include? And, and I, I learned so much from that. And, uh, and I think all of us who participated were better scholars um, because of it. Plus it was a ton of fun because you could really meet really wonderful people and I uh, always structured the events to have good food and to, you know, address the kind of, um, I think often loneliness of, of academic work in some ways, you know, and, and to encourage people to think outside the bounds. You know, it, it can be hard in an environment where you are trying to look at things that other people take for granted or to do innovative work or to do work that challenges the mainstream. And I think it's really important to have a community where that's okay. That's, in fact, that's really what's valued. How do we rethink the foundations? And that, so that was always part of the feminism and legal theory workshop. What would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today? Well, I'd like to stop and think about what what is the economy? Who is it? It's not an abstract thing out there. It's how people negotiate their daily lives. And so we have to really rethink, given the current crises that we're facing, how can we reimagine economic growth and economic well-being? And um, how can we make that something that is real and um, takes us away from a constant crisis um, and that gives people hope and faith in, um, in community, in, in democracy, and uh, rather than um, constantly uh, going into more and more divisiveness about, well, who's getting what? And, you know, there's not enough for me. And uh, I think that the, the vision of, of um, vulnerability and uh, that Martha Feynman offers gives us a way to rethink the economy um, uh, in a way that would bring us together and um, move us through some of these, um, you know, incredible challenges that we face today.
Thank you again for being here today, Professor McCluskey. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. You can find a link to Feminism Confronts Homo Economicus, Gender, Law, and Society in the episode description on SoundCloud. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.